This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Warkoski, and this is, can you believe it, episode 16. And it is officially not only episode 16, but the official final episode of season one. Man, if you had told me back in, I guess, December that I would have 16 episodes of a podcast by the end of April, I'm not sure I would have believed you, but sure enough, here I am and here we are at this final episode of season one. So thanks to everyone who has tuned in, provided great feedback, given me support, sent me a tweet, liked something um, on Facebook or, or, or something I said in Twitter. I've just, I've been so grateful for all of the kind words and, and cheering section that I've sort of accumulated over the last several months. So I am super excited about this episode. Um, you know, as I said, I'm excited because it is number 16. And I decided kind of just by happenstance that this episode would end with one more interview with a great friend, Dr. Beth Cobet. This will be my, uh, I think this is the third interview of the season. I'm hoping next season to integrate way more interviews because after talking with Beth, uh, Cobet this lat this morning. Um, I just feel like I need to do more interviews because I just learned so much from all the great leaders and educators out there. So hopefully we'll we'll see more of that in season two. Um, so again, we're going to talk to Dr. Beth Cobet, and um, I will be while I'll end this uh, season today officially. I am going to continue blogging through the summer, so please make sure you check out the website whatsourstory.com. If you missed earlier episodes of the season, they are all available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. I know there's a couple of other places they're available as well, and also on the website, whatsourstory.com. So please, this is a time now, sort of as we move into the summer, to catch up on the episodes you missed so that you'll be raring to go in the fall. And as always, if you have more feedback or ideas, story ideas, if you're interested in coming on the podcast, which I would love, love, love to hear, please, please email me at kerryborkoski at gmail.com. Or you can send me a tweet at Tell Me This Pod. So, so today, um, as I said, I'm going to do a, an interview. I think turned out to be a great interview with Dr. Beth Cobet, and 
just going to round out the season with, you know, a chat about sort of what's been going on with respect to the pandemic, um, our focus as educators and leaders, as parents, as community members, as family members, um, insights that we've sort of picked up on, you know, reading and paying attention to articles and and sort of the messages that are being sent by schools and 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 the public sector, I guess. And then talk about, in particular, the experiences of, um, she's an amazing professor in her own right, Dr. Beth Cobet. And I really think what she's talking about, um, it's just a, it's just a great way to sort of finish off this discussion around the pandemic. So as you might imagine, I will follow sort of my normal format, which is I will offer a story, a few takeaways, the interview, of course, is a little bit different, although I've done one uh, one or two in the past, and then offer just a little bit of empirical research on what we're going to be discussing today, and then a final wrap-up with some final thoughts. So before I take a break um, for the next segment, I did want to say that the takeaways for this podcast, I think, um, and these are, of course, works in progress as they always are. What I've been thinking about is this idea that we really can only manage what we can manage, and that has to be okay. This is, I feel like, acutely true um, in this crisis. We ha- we can only manage what we can manage, and that has to be okay. I would argue that I hope that that's a takeaway as we get back to hmm, whatever that new normal might be. I say back to, I would hesitate to say normal. Whatever new normal we create, I think this is one takeaway that we should really keep in our back pocket to give ourselves permission to manage what we can manage and have that be okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about that um, later. The other thing I've picked up, and this is sort of a recent thing, so I'm still sort of figuring this one out, taking it out for a test drive, if you will, I've decided in my own brain that I'm no longer going to say something like, you know, this pandemic has given me, you know, great opportunities or the silver lining, right? The silver lining in all this is I'm not going to say that anymore because I just I'm having a hard time thinking about silver linings when tens of thousands of people are dying and families are losing loved ones and people are suffering with this illness in isolation all around the world. So I don't want to say that there's a silver lining. What I what I am starting to recognize and say is that as individuals, we're managing and shifting our resources that tend to or start to create different and sometimes new or different opportunities. Okay. So Again, I'll unpack that a little bit more, but I'm thinking about this notion, and I can use the example of, in a blog that I wrote last week, I was talking about, um, you know, natural connections and sort of this idea of, of getting out, for me at least personally, getting out for a run and reconnecting with nature and feeling like I was in a conversation of sorts with the wind as I was r- running up that hill. And so... I'm not going to call that sort of a silver lining moment. What I'm going to call that is it's just, it's a recognition of something that was already there, but it's a shifting of my sort of cognitive and emotional resources to notice it better, to pay more attention. It's almost like if you were to read a textbook or an article or a book for the second time, 
And maybe you miss that really important line the first time and then you highlight it the second time. It's not that there was ever any silver lining to this situation. It's just that for whatever reason, and in this case, the pandemic, I'm noticing different things that had always been there. And so what I'm trying to say is that, you know, maybe some of these things have existed, our interest, for example, in others' well-being and connection and belonging. And in the context of a pandemic, we're noticing it better. We're noticing that it's louder and it's it's needed and it's a shifting of resources to pay more attention. And and you, as you're here in Dr. Um, Kobet's interview, when she talks about belonging, she quickly mentions that belonging can sometimes be about context. So you know, this context of a pandemic in the backdrop has perhaps intensified both our need and our willingness to pay attention to belonging. So that was a pretty long explanation for a quick takeaway. (laughs) Sorry about that. The third takeaway for today is pretty easy. It's well-being, 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 right? And that's just a reminder that as we continue to move through this pandemic, as I reflect on emails I've received from students, but also from sort of our leadership about how to manage these times. As I've read articles in the Harvard Business Review, in the New York Times, on on my Twitter feed, it's not been about, you know, accountability and standardized tests and and, um, achievement. It's been about connection and well-being and kindness and empathy and you know, eight tips for making sure you're connecting with whomever, right? That social distancing doesn't have to mean social isolation. And we talked about that um, a bit earlier. And when I brought Brianne Ruse on, we talked about that as well. So we've really, again, highlighted some of these key things that have been there, but maybe haven't played as dominant as a role as either they needed to play or that they should be playing, right? That's sort of a normative statement of mine for sure. So kindness, empathy, simplifying, leveraging your moments. So that goes back to managing what you can manage it, leaning into the tough times and moving through them. Don't push them down and being able to name your emotions and feelings. So, so we can only manage what we can manage and being okay with it. I'm not thinking about silver linings anymore. I'm thinking about how attention and resources are shifting to, to these different opportunities and just a reminder that in a crisis like this, well-being is is where it's at, and we really should be paying a lot of attention and time and resources to um, cultivating, caring for, and noticing our our own and our loved ones and others' well-being. So when I come back from a really quick break, I am of course gonna share a quick story, and then we will jump into the interview and the research portion of the podcast. So. As I said, this is episode 16, Teaching Our Teachers and Students During a Pandemic, and this is the Tell Me This podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be right back. All right, welcome back to episode 16, our final episode of season one talking about teaching teachers and students during a pandemic and thinking about, you know, managing what we can manage and being okay with it, that this idea of 
opportunities emerge from managing and shifting our resources, both individually and as a group, and to always keep in mind this really important focus on well-being. In terms of stories, I actually, this is one that, that happened recently, so I thought I would, I would share this one. Um, so I had a sync session last night with one of my classes, end of the, getting close to the end of the semester, wrapping up the final assignment. And so it's, it's pretty customary in these online courses that we try to connect and just, you know, to answer any questions and sort of give a quick overview of the assignment. Normally, I would prepare, you know, an agenda, maybe a few slides just to keep us on track. And my TA and I decided um, not to do that this time, that there are just other things pressing that felt like it felt, I don't know, just inauthentic or it didn't create sort of the conditions for having a really good conversation if I had like, if I threw up Google Slides or a PowerPoint or something. So, so we just went in it. Um, to have a conversation about the assignment and really as a check-in, most importantly. And the reason I'm sharing this story is is it reminded me of this first takeaway, or maybe this is why I included this takeaway, this idea that we can only manage what we can manage. The reality right now is that we all, in our own way and in whatever way it looks, we have a plan. Students have a plan for finishing assignments, for graduating, for successfully completing courses, for writing a chapter of a dissertation, for finishing second grade. You have a, a plan for how you're going to manage your day with your job, with your house, just life, right? We all, in some way, even if it's sticky notes all over the place or it's organized in Trello or OneNote or Outlook, Name your organizational feature or tool, right? We all have a plan. The thing is, in a, in a pandemic, this crisis that none of us have ever experienced, that plan like doesn't always work. And I told my students because they're so worried about, of course, their outcomes, their success in this course and the work that they're doing towards their dissertation. These are doctoral students. I said to them, this isn't a race. This is a moment where you cannot compare yourself to your peers. You cannot compare yourself to cohorts that have come before you. This is a journey and this is a long journey. And it's a long journey regardless of the external context. So now just dump the pandemic into that bucket and it becomes even more complicated. And what it reminded me of, not just for my doc students, but for all of us is, look, you can only do what you can do at any given moment. And so if you're accustomed to getting up early, you know, or maybe the first day of the week, you create this, this to-do list and you have a planner or you have a calendar and you have all these things on it, you're sort of setting, you're setting goals for yourself and you're setting bars for success, right? Like we may not explicitly realize that, but you're automatically by saying, you know, I'm going to do grocery shopping by Thursday. Well, when you hit that goal, that check is like success, right? Like it feels sometimes like winning a race, especially now, right? Where we have to order our groceries. I'm asking you to give yourself a break and to give yourself permission 
to forget that plan when you have to. If you have a moment where you are, the sun is shining, the kids, the dog, your significant other, the neighbors, things are all lining up and you can get some stuff done, then get it done. But if you're having one of those days where it's raining, you're tired, it's another day of homeschool, it's another day of managing Zoom and figuring out how to use it and you just can't manage it, then just be in that space. And that's what I told our students last night is this journey, you will get you will get to this outcome, this dissertation that you want to complete. You will finish your year one paper. Just stop comparing yourself and stop worrying about getting to the end so quickly and think about what can I do in this time that will contribute to the work that I'm doing and also care for myself. So really that story, I think even though I was talking to a group of students in in an online doctoral program, I think and hope that it has a lot of meaning um, across multiple contexts for all different kinds of people in different kinds of roles. So just giving yourself permission to throw that day planner out the window, to delete the to-do list on the calendar. And, you know, we're sort of making it up as we go along and that has to be okay for now. It just has to be. And I think that'll make, make things a little bit easier. Um, it also on a funny note, cause I always, as you, as folks who listen to me regularly know that this podcast is really in honor and memory of my grandmother. It also really reminds me of a story that, that I I've shared with some, some of my friends about when our son, our oldest son was born. And when he turned, I don't know, he was like two and a half or three. He was, he, in my view, he was getting to the point where he was just a little bit too old, whatever that means to be drinking out of a bottle. And as is customary with me, I was comparing and Googling and worrying and wondering. And my grandmother turned to me one day and she's so, she was so super kind and nice and, you know, would lean in and listen and really paying attention to, and knew because she knows me or knew me that it was bothering me. And it was just me and her. And I'm sure I had my son with me. And she turned to me and said, you know what, Carrie, when he graduates from high school, there, no one, first of all, is going to know that he drank out of a bottle till he was, you know, three. And it's not going to matter. And so what I'd like to hope from this experience is it matters. I'm not saying this time doesn't matter. But when I think about my doc students and the work that they're doing, it's part of the journey and there'll be time and there's space built in where the time will be made up and things will change and you'll accomplish. We'll all accomplish what we need to accomplish. What's important now is loving our son, even when he's drinking a bottle and caring for him and keeping him safe and connecting with my students and checking in with my students. Because if I can help them take care of themselves, right, manage their well-being, check in on their well-being, then when this breaks, and it will, and we resume and identify our new normal, they'll have the energy and motivation to pick up that work. So, um, yeah. So those are my stories. And I hope that it gives each of you some permission to be kind and empathetic with yourself and to give yourself a break when you're trying to push through that to-do list. Um, You can only do what you can do, and you've got to be okay with it. 
All right. Well, I had a big buildup to this interview, and I, I know because I know Dr. Cobet pretty well that you will not be disappointed with this interview. So when I come back, um, you will hear a chat that I had with Dr. Beth Cobet. All right. Thanks so much for listening. This is Tell Me This, episode 16. All right. Welcome back to Tell Me This, episode 16, Teaching Our Teachers and Students During a Pandemic. Um, Thanks for rejoining me. I am so excited uh, for my guest today. She's making a face at me right now. That's okay. Um, Dr. Beth Cobet um, agreed to to join us today and talk about the work that she does with her students and her pre-service teachers. Um, I feel lucky because Beth is super busy with all that she does. Um, We met each other in doc school and have remained pretty good friends. So um, it's just, I'm delighted to have her. Um, Just by way of introduction, uh, Dr. Cobet, and I'm sure I'm going to miss something, Beth, so I apologize ahead of time, but she's an associate professor at Stevenson University. She primarily works with pre-service teachers, leads all sorts of professional learning efforts, both at Stevenson in Maryland, where she's located, but also nationally. She was a former classroom teacher, elementary math specialist, adjunct professor, and the list goes on and on. I, I also want to say that she was a recipient of the Mathematics Educator of the Year in Maryland and also received a, a university, a Stevenson University Excellence in Teaching Award. And I know I'm leaving out things like all the books and textbooks you've written and all the speaking engagements you've done, but I wanted to make sure I I gave you some kudos there. So Beth, welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm about ready to run from that introduction, but thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I wanted to share all your, your celebrations. So, and it's good to, it's good to be talking about fun, positive things during this crazy pandemic. So just, you know, you just got to deal with it. Right. <laughs> right. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Thank you. Yeah. So before we get started with this sort of interview, I just want to check in, like, how are you? How is your family? Is everybody safe and, and doing all right during this crazy time? Yes, we are safe. Um, we have had, our family has been impacted a little bit um, and with COVID, but we're, we're staying strong and moving forward. So Good. we're doing at the, Today at this moment, we're we're quite well. Thank you. Great. It looks like is the sun out in Maryland? I... Uh, the sun peaks out okay. for a moment, and then you run outside to to enjoy it, and then a little <laughs> cloud comes in. So okay. we're appreciating any sun sun that we get these days. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was gonna say it looks bright, so that always makes for a better day, at least in in our neck of the woods. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think you know this this podcast is all of you know all things related to belonging, building community, uh, cultivating connections, things that we've talked lots and lots about. I'm wondering as we get started, if you would mind sharing when you hear the word belonging, sort of what's your conception or idea of that, that term? So I think it's such an interesting question because, you know, belonging is so for me, belonging is so much about context. Mm. Um, So if I think about places where I feel that I do belong, it's about being in spaces where people know who I am, see me who, 
for who I really am, like all my faults and quirks and goofiness, <laughs> yeah. um, feeling valued maybe mm-hmm. for making um, contributions to the family. And I don't mean monetary, of course, I mean, just like being part of something mm-hmm. and being known, being known mm-hmm. for nice. who I am. Cool. I like that. So you mentioned sort of, or describe the, you know, the spaces where would represent you feel that you belong. I'm wondering if you can think of a moment, um, either in your past or recently, um, that you didn't feel like you belonged and sort of what that was like and sort of how you worked to overcome it. Or was there sort of a a particular individual that was supportive and sort of made you, you know, sort of rekindle that belonging, if you wouldn't mind sharing? Sure. Um, I think I have lots of spaces where I feel like I don't belong. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so this is a really interesting question. I think as a professor, we have this sort of idea of imposter syndrome where often I'm in situations where I'm thinking, I don't belong. There's so many people here so much smarter mm. than me. Um, So I I think that I go back to um, maybe one of the first moments when I really thought this is something that I wanted to do. And I was just, I was an adjunct professor and fairly young. I want to say I was in my late twenties and I, I won't say where, and I went to the front desk to ask for some materials and they said, absolutely not go get your professor. You, you don't get them. (laughs) And there was a, a flash a moment when I thought I'm I'm just gonna leave because obviously I don't belong and um, and then I kind of walked away because Mm -hmm. I had been told I was not allowed to have the materials and then I decided to go back and have a little bit of a conversation but I think I faced that initial feeling and I think when I feel it I know it's so much more about me than Mm -hmm. it is about the people around me so when I'm facing that feeling of not belonging, I, I have to sit in it for a minute and just mm. examine why is it that I don't feel like I belong? Do I feel like I can't contribute? Do I feel that I'm not worthy or valued in this situation? Mm. And that helps me sort of orient because I think there are spaces where I don't belong, but certainly if I'm there, I want to try and engage as much as possible and not make it about the people around me, but make mm. it about myself. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That reminds me of Brene Brown. I'm totally paraphrasing, but Brene Brown talks about um, the idea of the stories we tell ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of, I love that you sort of check yourself almost to say, okay, is this really about the person and their comment or is this about me? And what's the, what am I thinking about in my head that may not even be true, right? It's really what, what we're dealing with ourselves. So yeah. I, I, when you said imposter syndrome, I was nodding furiously. The audience can't see it, but I think there, the more I talk to faculty and like recent grads of doc programs, I mean, that is such a real thing for, I feel like everybody, even though we don't admit it (laughs) always, but yeah, definitely a real thing. Um, I know I I introduced you and, and gave a little bit of background, but I would love just as we dig into some of these questions that I'm going to ask you, could you just sort of share with the audience what it is that you do at Stevenson, you know, I know you, I know you do work with sort of the first year seminar students, um, but you're also doing a lot of work with pre-service teachers. So can you just help folks sort of understand for people that don't have a lot of familiarity with pre-service teacher work or, you know, those prep programs, what you're doing in your capacity? 
Sure. So Stevenson is fairly small university. So that means I get to wear many, many hats. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually, <laughs> I mean, I think we all do. Um, but I think it's one of the things that I love about mm. being at Stevenson. And so I am responsible for the mathematics, teaching the mathematics methods. So I teach free service teachers how to teach math. Mm. I also teach a little math content, which is preparation for them to teach mathematics. So it's primarily math content that they'll be responsible for teaching at a deep level. Um, then I direct the first year seminar program for the university, which is wonderful because I get to connect with people all across the university. Mm. And that has been a wonderful opportunity to get to know what's going on across the university, not just in the school of education. Um, I mentor students in the field, so I get mm. to go into the schools and work with them in the schools, mm -hmm. and um, I advise a, a whole group of students as well. I advise a club, which is a mentoring um, oh. club that goes to an elementary school oh, every cool. week. Yeah, oh so gosh. those are just a few things yeah. that go on that I enjoy, but as you can see, all those hats are so fulfilling because they get um, I get to be creative and and, and really get to know students mm -hmm. really deeply. And I think that's probably the best part. Yeah. You're, and you're really seeing them from that beginning of the experience. And then I know you, you stay in strong contact with even alums, right? They're following up with sort of first and second year teachers in some of your work. So you're really seeing the full breadth of their experience, which must be really cool as well. Yes. I mean, I think one of the things we say, I mean, I'll meet them in an open house. So they'll come mm. to an open house and I'll remember them because I'll have them as freshmen. And if I don't remember them, they'll say, do you remember me? <laughs> oh, which is awesome. Yeah. And then what's really fun about that is, um, you know, one of the things I say to them is that this experience should change you. Mm. And I am here for that. And it's not that I'm changed. I want to change you in a particular way. You're going to be changed by the experience. Mm. So being alongside that journey yeah. is pretty spectacular. Yeah, that's to me, that just sounds like such a privilege to be able to be a part of that. So the, one of the reasons, I mean, there are lots of reasons I, I asked you to be on the podcast, but I think one of the main reasons is I feel like you in particular, you have this unique role in education in that um, you're, you have students, obviously, but you're also working with students who will themselves be teachers. Right. So I feel like you're you're making impact and effect in, in on multiple levels in different ways. And so I thought, given everything going on with this pandemic, it would be fantastic to talk to someone who's in your role, who's not only seeing the effects on our students, but also seeing this reverberate in their work as they prepare to be teachers so that you really understand to some degree what's going on in the schools while also being a teacher yourself. And so one of the questions I had for you um, is as this sort of, as we were sort of the realization of what this pandemic meant in terms of, you know, closing down schools and, and sending kids home, students home, what, what was, can you sort of take us into sort of those first couple of meetings that you had with colleagues to sort of think about, you know, what were, what were the conversations? Like, what was, what was the priority? What were the worries? What was the target? Can you just share? And I know there's probably a ton of stuff, but just sort of a few things that you recall were sort of, you know, top line sort of issues or the first couple of things, if that makes sense as a question. Oh my gosh, it's an amazing question. Um, 
it's really amazing. It really makes me think about the initial reaction. Um, I think the very first thing that we did was talk about helping our students feel that they were going to be okay, that we were going to make sure that they got certified, that their courses would keep going, that mm -hmm. we would provide simulation activities. I mean, we didn't know what we were going to do at that moment, and we didn't know what the state was going to require. We didn't sure. know how the schools were going to handle. Mm. There were so many unknowns, but all we could do is how are we going to reassure them immediately um, to make sure that they know we've got them and we understand mm -hmm. their concerns? Because, of course, they're in a situation where the school systems are focusing on their students and their teachers. So we we said, you are our priority. Mm. And then this is what we're going to do to figure that out. And, and um, so that was the first, the first brush was constantly reassuring them that everything was going to be okay. It was, it was, they were very, very concerned. It, it's historic for yeah. um, teacher prep not to be able to fulfill the requirements and the standard traditional way that we've always had to do that. And quite honestly, we've never even considered what would happen if we couldn't. Sure. Um, Why would you, people. right? Why would you? Like, <laughs> I know. I mean, my gosh. Yeah. So I think that, and then secondly was, okay, what are all the things we could do? And we just started outlining mm. alternative simulation activities and professional learning and all of those kinds of things. And then who we needed to contact. So it became like a, a pretty detailed operation, but mm -hmm. in the beginning it was, what do we need to do? Okay. So, and then we also knew we needed to pivot and we pivoted and we pivoted and we pivoted. That's a hard word to say, by the way. It pivoted. We had, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. <laughs> we made a pivot. Maybe we'll just use the noun, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, we, like everyone else was doing that. We were yeah. doing it alongside the rest of the country and saying, okay, we're going to do this. Wait, wait, no, we're going to have to do this. Okay. And um, so we were meeting with our groups of teachers regularly and, and saying, okay, here's the first thing you're going to do. Yeah. And we just, we just gave it to them in little bite-sized pieces till information became clear. So when you say pivot, I'm not going to let us get off this word yet because it's so fun to say <laughs> When you say pivot and then pivot again, was this changing course? Was this additive? Was this like learning a new piece of information and making adjustments or was it all of that? I'm just trying to understand what that pivot means. It was definitely all three of those. Okay. Um, uh, but I would say mostly it was as we got new information, then we were able to say, okay, we can just, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, we didn't know if they would be able to join their teachers, their mentor teachers in remote instruction. Okay. It wasn't clear. And we, it was our job to leave the schools alone, to let them deal with what they were dealing oh, with got and it. wait. Okay. And we knew that calling up and saying, well, what about, our, you know, wasn't the <laughs> yeah. appropriate way. Yeah. They that. would have loved that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So initially we designed something assuming that that wouldn't happen, but it did happen. And Got all it. of them were invited to the classroom. So it worked out beautifully, but we kind of had a more comprehensive approach and we were able to, to loosen that so, because they were invited into the remote instruction. Got it. Well, gosh, it, it feels like you and teacher prep in general may have been doing way more triage than a lot of sort of other higher ed programs, given that strong connection with 
the schools sort of having to wait and see and make assumptions and then change those, you know, based on new information. That must have been, that must have been some tough moments, like for that, that first period. I mean, you were in triage mode, essentially, it sounds like. Absolutely. And it was interesting because while we were also moving to remote instruction ourselves, so we're also trying to take classes that were face-to-face and move them to remote, which the whole university was. Right. But the whole idea of these clinical experiences, um, and we also noted that the School of Nursing also mm. was um, scrambling as well. I don't know if scramble is the correct word, but pivoting as well, yeah. trying to figure out what they could do. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Those, those, I feel like those programs that have contact hours and certifications and licensure implications, you really, because we, um, where I work, there's a counseling program that had similar sort of issues, same, same sort of idea. So, you know, you, you mentioned that sort of, I love this idea of thinking like, you know, students would be okay, right? Defined really broadly, which is, yes, we're going to make sure your, your sort of certification is intact. We're, we're managing this, but I, I, and I also imagine there was a well-being piece to this too, right? Because I know you well enough to, to know that, that you care about your students as human beings, I would argue first than teachers. And so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering as you were doing sort of the logistics and content triage, can you sort of paint a picture of what you were doing and continue to do to, I mean, cultivate connection, right? How were you keeping up with your students? And um, as I've been telling our, our principal, making sure no one is falling through the gaps, right? We're not losing anyone. So can you just share some, some strategies that you've been using that, and that have been effective for you and your students? Yes. I mean, this is broader across Um, not just the most of the conversation I just had was about our senior internships, which, um, yeah, but across the whole group, we did all kinds of things where we were holding um, just let's get together meetings Mm -hmm. where we were getting on um, and talking to them, having them voice their concerns, sending them messages. Um, I um, personally mailed off packets to all Mm -hmm. of my students with, uh, your awesome cards and Aww. lollipops and little things like that. And I did not, I have reawakened mail as a very <laughs> cool thing. Mail. Yeah, and, the post um, office thanks you. <laughs> I have been to the post office and I was so excited the first time I went and they had the plexiglass up. I thought, well, okay, this is a place I can go. And yeah. so, yes, there have been a lot of ways. I, I think the well-being pieces making sure we are connecting mm-hmm. um, with each and every student that we have. So we, we meet as a faculty every week, which is much mm-hmm. more than we ever have. And we say, who have, have we heard from everyone? Mm-hmm. Do, who have we not heard from? Um, that might mean that we are sitting down, like I, I had a, a conversation with a student who's not in any of my classes, but I've had him you know, as a student before and said, no one's heard from you, so we mm. want to know what's going on. So every student, we know that every student has, we're reaching out to every student, and if we don't hear from them. So there's communication among faculty, not mm-hmm. just faculty to students. Got it. I think that's huge and important because our students are just as vulnerable <sighs> as any other population or more vulnerable Absolutely. in some ways. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's that's fantastic. I've been trying to do a similar thing. If if I haven't talked to the student directly, I'm making sure that I have spoken to someone who knows what they're right, like making sure those networks are yeah. alive and well um, and when they're not checking in. So I love to hear that your faculty as a team is coming together because that really speaks volumes about just the group of people, you know, that you're working with in this time. So that that's really nice. Um, to wrap up, the, the final question is, it's, it's twofold. Um, and the second part of it, I know we could probably spend the next several hours talking about, but I'm going to ask you for your opinion anyway, because um, I'm curious to hear what you say. So the first part of the question is about, you know, I, I'm hearing how you organize the logistics and, and making sure the connections and students weren't falling through the gaps. Can you give us a little bit of insight, like if we were looking at one of your syllabi, for example, and you're, you know, you've got this month and a half left of a semester, what kinds of things did you, or maybe you didn't do to really focus the learning, right? Cause like, look, I just, I just read an article. I'm going to talk about it after our interview in the last segment of the podcast. Um, I decided to do some work on um, homework on cognitive load, right. And sort of mm -hmm. the effects of emotion on cognitive load. And, and I read this great article that I'm going to share with the audience, which is what can we do to sort of help students manage it? And one of the tips that the author gives is stripping things down like really focusing in. And I'm wondering if you can sort of help us enact, what does that look like in a syllabus, for example, for, in, for your students? Wow, that's such a fabulous question. I actually did do that. Mm. Um, as a person who's known as having pretty rigorous courses and lots of assignments <laughs> and torturing everyone, yeah. not in a bad way, but yeah. you know, like, because I love what I do and I'm so passionate and yeah. this is such a great experience. <laughs> Um, I gave up on all of that and said, mm. you know, what is it they need to leave, leave with? And also, I'm really aware that I need to model what I want them to model. Yes. The last thing I would want them to do in the classroom mm. is overload their own students. Yeah. How could I do that myself? <laughs> so um, I'll give you an example. I took out assignments. I stripped down some of the readings. I, I really did take a hard look. And I mean, it just was, there was a lot of piecing for me and a lot of why am I so attached to this way of being or this way of teaching? Yes. So yes. I, there are things that I have learned that I will, that I know were so important for me mm -hmm. to do a, even be a, the best teacher I can be, which is this, which is what is it that you need to know, to understand as you leave this classroom and or this space that we're in together. So mm -hmm. I took assignments out. I uh, took one assignment, which is a pretty big one, which we still have, but I piecemealed it. So that cognitive load you're talking yep. about, totally. I said, this little part is here. And then we're on Google Docs together. And I'm going to give you feedback along the way. Nice. And you're going to feel super great about this assignment. It's going to be, you know, just beautiful because we're going to work together. That's awesome. And so... Yeah. yeah. So that, that was another no tip. Big, that was actually another was tip it? in the article was taking a big assignment and chunking it into little pieces that they can manage. Um, and that, of course, is lots of reasons to do that. But that's awesome that you did that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so just um, and I did that in all of my classes. So okay. all of my classes got stripped down. Yeah. And I also is very, as a teacher educator, though, you also have to explain why you're doing everything. Mm. I think you should. Yes. So I say, okay, here's why I'm doing this. Mm. 
and here's why I'm doing this. And so, and they really respond well to that. They like mm -hmm. to know that. I think people in general like to know why you're doing things. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, the president issued a um, video message right in the middle of my content class. We were doing a synchronous class and I had my iPad up and all kinds of crazy stuff. And they had something came across their faces and they said, we just got a message from our president. And I said, we're stopping and we're going to, we're going to find out what happened, what he said. Uh -huh. And it was about the fall. Uh, and so again, I said, I'm taking my, here's my teacher hat. You, yeah. You're not going to pay any attention to what's happening because <laughs> I want to know too. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's why, I mean, that's why I think what you're saying, because you, you're in such a unique position as an educator, because I mean, we should all be modeling good right? Good decisions yeah. and behavior for students, whether they're methodologists, teachers, or scientists. But for you specifically, like these are our future teachers. And so when they're faced with a stressful situation with their own students, we want them to remember this great experience that you're giving them and showing them. So uh, I, I've stopped saying silver lining because I don't think I believe that anymore with a pandemic, but I do yeah. think there are opportunities to learn. And it sounds like your students are getting some of those, which is really great. Um, the last question, and this is totally going to sound loaded given what we just talked about, but something, <laughs> something I've been thinking about, and I know others just if you, and I know you're on Twitter, if you're looking at social media or even just reading the sort of types of articles that are coming out these days, you know, when you think about, and I've done a little bit of this myself, when you think about stripping down the syllabus and your faculty coming together to to make sure we're connecting with students and we see this in, in other ed spaces. Beth, what do you think this means for us moving forward with education? Like there's gotta be implications. Like, you know, you just said, why am I doing what I do, right? Why do we have the structures and policies and procedures in place? Do you think the fact that you've made some of these changes now will sort of reverberate into sort of your future teaching practices? I hope so. I yeah. think something that I've always championed is depth over breadth. You mm. know, this idea of going deep is always much more meaningful because I learn more and I can apply it to yeah. other situations. The idea of teaching everything you know is impossible anyway. <laughs> so if you have a few really rich experiences in deep learning, mm -hmm. why that takes you, I mean, isn't that what learning really is? And um, I know that certain facts, I mean, I'm a math person, are helpful to yeah. being able to do the next thing. <laughs> yeah. But I also think that doesn't mean I can't learn the next thing. So mm. I need to teach I feel like it's helped me recenter the purpose of what my, you know, my understanding of my purpose. And mm -hmm. that is that people have deep, rich, meaningful, connected experiences where they develop a positive identity about the learning that they're doing and who they are as learners, and then take that, move that forward in, into teaching. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think that's true. I hope that's true for all of us yeah. as we begin to reimagine what we're going to do. Um, and use it as a strength, not as a deficit. I, I hear a lot of deficit language about what students aren't going to know. Yeah. And that Ugh. really frightens me because that's so easy to say. Mm -hmm. We have so much knowledge out there. It yeah. shouldn't be about what students don't know. It should be about what they know and bridging 
taking that and bridging it to the next thing That's and right. using what they do know to build on it. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. And I know you're a big um, believer and user practicer of appreciative inquiry. And I, why are we assuming that there are going to be so many gaps in the learning when they return in the fall? I mean, I know, I know why, but like, you know, why, why do we have to take that approach? Why can't we be hopeful that I know there are equity issues that are real and serious and I understand that piece. And I think we should be thinking about how to address that at the same time. There's a part of me that almost wishes we would do the state testing in the fall and we would see no change in state testing. And I'd say, well, what does that mean about (laughs) what we're doing in schools? Um, But yeah, I I agree with you. I, I don't want to be worried about the deficit thinking, I wish we could use some, you know, what, you know, they may not have, you know, my son might be rusty on his um, arrays. That's what we're working on right now. I'm dr- they're driving me Ooh. nuts. Um, but he may have improved in other areas, right? Like his writing and creativity mm-hmm. and things that, that maybe wouldn't have happened if he had known his arrays. So I think there are ways, and I think that's what you believe also, there are ways to think about the strengths too, right? Not just mm-hmm. focusing on what they don't know in this time of a pandemic. So anyway, so, well, look, I, as I said, I so appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you do and always love a chance to have a conversation with you. So I think, I think our, my um, listeners will also appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining me today, Beth. Thank you. And I appreciate you. This has been so much fun. And you yeah. threw me a few curveballs, which is yeah. <laughs> well, I tried, I tried. So, all right. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Cobet, and I hope you could hear how much I enjoyed it. She is just brilliant woman, absolute delight to be around. And I feel so, um, I don't know, honored and privileged to have gone to school with her and then also to call her a friend and colleague. So again, thanks Dr. Cobet. Um, for agreeing to come on the podcast. I bet that you all learned quite a bit from her. So I wanted to finish out the podcast with a couple of thoughts on those other takeaways, this idea of no silver lining, just managing and shifting of resources. And I'm sure you heard in the interview I did with Beth, this idea that her faculty which wasn't sort of the norm had started meeting or continue to meet once a week uh, because they are trying to, you know, catch the students who may be falling through the cracks, making through sure that they are connecting and cultivating community and belonging. And really it is, again, shifting, rekindling opportunities that perhaps were there, but because we get focused on learning outcomes and content and meetings and research and publications, we sometimes, again, shift things away from our attention. They're still there in our peripheral vision, but perhaps we're not as focused on them. And I really liked that example that Beth used to remind us that it was sort of a shifting away from content for a moment and putting well-being of the student and that connection right at the center of things given this pandemic. So again, I'm not calling it a silver lining, but it is pretty incredible that a group of faculty came together and prioritized student connection and student, you know, saying, 
you're going to be okay. And I think Beth even said, you know, we've got you here um, with respect to both academic things like licensure, your certification, and also just checking in on you, um, your well-being. And so, of course, the interview also dovetails really nicely with that last takeaway of focusing on well-being. I think throughout the interview, it was apparent to me and in my own experiences that we as leaders, parents, teachers, educators, community members have really taken this well-being piece to heart and that we have focused attention on, you know, minding the store with respect to our students cared for, our teachers getting what they need and feeling supported. So, um, and also it's really hard sometimes, but as Brianne and I talked about this idea of shared vulnerability, creating spaces for us to both name and feel our emotions instead of sort of pushing them down and ignoring them and, and working through the the challenges that we face. So again, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, I'm again, hoping also to do some additional interviews next fall. So if you have ideas or even want to come on the podcast, I definitely have a list of people that I'd love to come on. So, um, more to come on that, um, early in the fall. So as is customary, I also wanted to loop in a little bit of research. And so as preparation for this podcast, I found an article called Four Ways of Considering Emotion in Cognitive Load Theory, and it's PLAS and Cayuga 2019. And I got interested in this because, as you'll hear a little bit later before the wrap-up is, I've been reading a lot, and I'm sure it's it's apparent to everybody who's experiencing this pandemic, which is the whole world, that there's just a lot of stress and worry and anxiety and fear um, floating around. And what's interesting is that as we think about learning spaces, whether it's in your organization, your community, um, uh, committees and things of that nature, or our schools or homeschooling, as it were, we need to think about the extent to which and how the stress and anxiety that we're all feeling becomes a filter for how we're learning and what we're learning. And so I went back to the literature and I am by no means an expert, not even close on cognitive load theory. And it's this idea that there are in instructional implications of, of human cognition. So when we think about learning and we think about knowing things, researchers talk about working memory and long-term memory. And when you think about working memory, and again, I am stripping this down to the, the basics. So for my my neuroscientist friends out there and people who know a lot more about neurobiology than I than I do. Um, I apologize if I'm <laughs> I'm simplifying it too much for your liking. But working memory is the part of the memory that you want to think about when we're constructing new knowledge. It's limited in capacity and it's limited in duration when managing new information. Long-term memory as might be more familiar to folks, is where we permanently store knowledge structure, right? So when you think about making connections and interconnection of ideas, that's sort of how we're able to create effective recall, right? Um, and so cognitive load refers to the working memory load that's required from a learner to perform a cognitive task, right? So cognitive load. And these, what's interesting is that and I, again, I don't want to go into too much detail because 
I don't know the detail very well. So I'm going to explain to you what I understand, which is when we think about load, there's sort of a productive load, which is relevant to learning. And then there's this, what they call unproductive load, which is not necessary to learning. It's extraneous. And it's sometimes generated by activities that result from the design and selection of learning tasks. So for example, if you have a group of individuals who need to learn something brand new, if the facilitator doesn't provide some sort of uh, steps for a search process or doesn't provide guidelines for starting the task, if these are novice learners, that's going to create you know, some unproductive load that they're going to be sort of, if you can imagine maybe, I don't know what the right metaphor would be, sort of running in a mouse wheel or running on a treadmill and not being able to, to productively learn and think about that task at hand. So this can impose significant working memory load when no strategies or prior knowledge is available. And for educators out there, this is one of the wonderful things about, you know, implementing scaffolding, right? That you give give learners sort of a bridge to that new knowledge. Now, these authors, the reason I brought this article to the podcast is not to show that I don't know that much about <laughs> neuroscience, but because these authors contend that we should really be thinking more about the integration of or the interaction of motivation, beliefs, affect, and knowledge um, when we're thinking about cognition. And so, you know, this idea that self-regulated learners are able to expand their capacity, well, that in part has to do, as they hypothesize, with their ability to manage the emotions that also exert some pressure and some influence on the cognitive processes that are happening. That They ultimately say you cannot separate emotion and cognition in the brain. So, for example... They share some research that suggests that, not surprisingly, high negative emotions during learning, so stress, anxiety, fear, um, longer time to reach mastery, lower performance on tasks, and lower achievement or learning outcomes. Whereas positive emotions give you sort of a high sense of control with positive tasks, increase learning outcomes, and even students find intrinsic value of that learning material, which can then lead to higher motivation. So negative emotions like stress may result in deeper, it can result, this is what the other weird thing is that negative emotions like stress, you know, depending on how it goes, may also result in deeper interest or exploration. So there is literature that suggests that some level of stress, right? So we talk about cognitive dissonance and that confusion can also motivate exploration, but it's sort of a fine line between, you know, the sort of the healthy stress, productive struggle, um, and sort of, I guess, you know, an unproductive struggle, if you will. Arguably, this pandemic could be potentially creating uh, really high levels of stress and anxiety that 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 aren't so good. And they go on to talk about, you know, this idea that emotions in cognitive load theory so that you could see where the brain, it sort of leads to allocation of resources to extra task processing that are not related to learning. So in other words, stress can fill the working memory with thoughts about one's performance. And here's what's key is it reduces the amount available for tasks at hand. So again, I am completely watering this down and simplifying it, but it's almost as if the stress 
is taking up space in the working memory so that you as an individual are trying to manage that stress, that stress you're focusing on that thing that's stressing you out. And so it's taking away from your ability to perform or learn. So you can see how that, that might matter. They argue that it can affect your memory. So facilitation hypothesis is where positive emotions can contribute to more available working memory, whereas negative emotions may narrow the effect, decrease creativity, and reduce academic outcomes. And they go on to talk about, you know, other specifics related to brain science and neurology. But the bottom line for them is that we really need, again, to be paying attention to emotions as a filter and as an influencer on cognition, and that it's not just sort of the learning design and learning task that matters, that it's sort of, you know, in what state emotionally are individuals coming to the table, are students coming to the table. So clearly, hopefully clearly, sort of these negative emotions um, can reduce motivation, um, can take up more working memory so that you aren't able to focus on the task. So they suggest that, and it's real. What's really cool is they talk about this, and I had never heard of this. This three-level taxonomy of goals of learner activities. So as you're designing activities and thinking about pedagogy, these authors, a different set of authors, uh, Kayuga and Singh, in 2016, talked about this three-level taxonomy. It was called. It was pre-instruction goals, acquisition of domain-specific knowledge, and then higher-level generalized knowledge. And Again, I'm not going to go into to too much detail, but the thing that I found very interesting is this pre-instruction goals. And I've sort of been talking about these like, you know, pre-conditions, like what are the conditions that we need to sort of create a space to do this work? And I think, and I need to dig into this article a bit more, that that's really what they're getting at is this idea that you have to create cognitive, emotional, and motivational conditions and set the stage so that learners come sort of ready to learn and can manage the cognitive load. So, um, you know, this all these articles we're reading and these strategies we're reading about that say it's important to have check-in meetings with your students. It's important to touch base with your students by phone or Zoom or snail mail, as Beth Cobet reminded us. This is part of the reason, because if we don't <coughs> disrupt or interrupt the stress that they're feeling and help them help our students, colleagues, friends, and family manage this, whatever we're asking them to contribute to, you know, a project, a task. Um, right now we're doing arrays in, in our son's math. Um, if you're asking them to contribute to some task, it's going to be made a lot harder if they're also dealing with all the stress of this pandemic. So, I think it's really important that we not only acknowledge the stress for our well-being, but if we want our friends, students, family, and colleagues to move forward and learn when we can, we also have to acknowledge the influence and space that these feelings take up when we're at a meeting and just not sort of, you know, gloss over them. And I think for the most part, at least the spaces I've been sort of entering, I feel like my friends and students and colleagues are doing a pretty good job of acknowledging what's going on. And, and I feel like I've been in most meetings where we're talking about these things. So I think it's great. And, and I think most, you know, groups that I'm in should be commended for that work. The thing that I keep asking myself is, 
why does it take a pandemic to get us to this space? <laughs> um, I mean, I know that's sort of a, I don't know, that's a big question, right? Um, but it does, again, going back to shifting resources and sh- shifting resources and shining a light on something, this need to know and check in with our colleagues, our friends, our families, and our students has always been there. We all, whether it's different, it looks different, we react differently, we all have stress and anxiety in our day-to-day lives. Now, granted, right now it's off the charts. But let's not forget when this thing finally does pass, and I said it will, and it will, let's not forget what we're learning right now, which is we've got to attend to these emotions. We have to learn to be able to ask how you're feeling and really be able to listen and take that in and really be able to identify and articulate what it is we're feeling because we just cannot be, I don't know, we cannot realize our full selves. Oh my gosh, that sounds so cheesy, but we cannot realize our full potential if we're not willing to take a moment to acknowledge that the emotions we're feeling play into whatever we're working on. So, all right, I'm going to get off my soapbox because I feel like I've I've said enough there. So in terms of racking, wrapping up, I know this is getting a bit long-winded, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up and I'll, you know what, I'm going to take one more break to give you guys a break because I know that is that is good for listeners and learners. So this is episode 16, um, teaching our teachers and students during a pandemic. And this is the Tell Me This podcast. I am Carrie Borkowski, and I will be right back for the final wrap-up for this episode and also for season one of Tell Me This. Thanks so much for sticking around. All right. Welcome back. Sorry, I got a little bit long-winded on that research. I just, I got really excited about that article. And so I wanted to make sure I I said my piece on it. I think I did. So in terms of a final wrap-up, I have another article that I found online just regarding the pandemic. It's called Teaching Through a Pandemic, Cognitive Load, Mental Health, and Learning Under Stress. And the reason I picked this one is because the authors actually provide some tips for reducing cognitive load and also reminders for why we should care about mental health and stress. And so, um, and they really do a nice job of stripping away some of the science that I find very confusing, interesting, but very confusing. And so they talk about the relationship between stress and mental health. And they remind us that stressful experiences release stress hormones that definitely affect learning that they, the stress actually can indirectly alter our learning circuits. So if you think about the neurons firing in our brains, moreover, the stress may link consequences. So these feelings may link consequences of a stressful experience to learning associations. And I understand that that matters with respect to recall and how we're sort of linking and interconnecting those memories and, and knowledge that we're building And the stress can also induce physiological and cellular changes in the learning circuitry. So there's actually physical, physiological things that can happen to us um, that have detrimental effects on our learning. And so just four of the many reasons to, you know, I don't know, get up in the morning and do some yoga with your, your kiddos or do some yoga online or 
take a few of those, um, what do they call it? Box breathing or I heard, I saw somebody do it. It was, what was it? Oh, I know what it was that we were watching the CNN town hall for kids on Saturday morning. If you have not seen it and, and you have any kind of kid in your life, I highly recommend that you find it. And one of the characters, I can't remember who it was, was showing us how to do belly breathing. It was awesome. Total meditation. So doing something like that can help manage the stress. And in terms of reducing cognitive load, they gave so many really interesting tips. And I, I was really happy because some of these I'm already doing with our students. And I know many of you out there are as well. Removing non-essential content, as, as Dr. Cobet shared, she really looked at her syllabus and, and stripped away some of the assignments and some of the extra tasks that are typically in there. Really decluttering um, breaking up live sessions. So if you are required because of contact hours to have a 60 or 90 minute Zoom session, really thinking about how you can do, I think what we've also all lovingly referred to as sort of mini lectures and face to face where you do sort of 10 minutes on and 10 minutes off, so to speak. Interestingly, <laughs> another tip was to allow students to control some of the pace of learning. And for me, this really speaks to this, this, point that as an instructor, I know and am hyper aware that they're going through something. What I can't know is exactly what it looks like and how it's affecting them and their space. And so sort of turning over some of that control to them. And here's the key thing, trusting them to organize the pace of learning with some guidance from me. It's really critical. And I have found, I've gotten some really good feedback on that. And I think that really helps students. And I can almost see them take a collective sigh of relief when I give them those opportunities. Breaking up large assignments into smaller ones. So if you had sort of a big culminating assignment or a big final exam, maybe you do a, a series of little things that they can, again, we can only manage what we can manage, right? So acknowledging those need for breaks and to do things a little bit at a time. As always, not surprising, collaborative learning opportunities. <clears throat> and of course, it's the last one, but I think is most important, checking in with students. So <clears throat> so I'm sure that many of my listeners out there are already doing these things. So please pat yourself on the back if you are. Um, hopefully you got some ideas from this article. I will link out to it on whatsourstory.com if you want to check out the article. It was a good one. Easy read. Um, the empirical article that I shared about cognitive load theory was a little bit more dense than I'm accustomed to for the podcast, but I thought it had some good tidbits. So, so finally, to wrap up this last episode, episode 16, and to finish out the season... I mean, I think the word that comes to mind for me is just gratitude. Um, I, again, I just like, I'm so thrilled that people have listened, that I've gotten emails and feedback about how, how folks are enjoying it. I've gotten great tips on how I could make it better or things that I could do to sort of make even the sound better, the way that I've said some things. And I've really taken that feedback to heart and shifted um, what I've done. And I want to thank you all for your kindness, your caring words, your valuable feedback and insights, and for just listening. I am so looking forward to a new se season that'll start early fall. And please don't forget to keep an eye out on the blog and my website, whatsourstory.com. And remember, please remember to lean in, listen, and learn, to lead, 
with kindness and empathy and make sure that you notice and name the value and contribution of yourself and others on your team, in your family, in your classes, in your cohort, your program, your organization, whatever spaces you find yourself, take note of the contribution of each individual because the smallest acknowledgement, noticing can go such a long way for that individual. So please um, pay attention to that this summer. I also wish everybody well. I want you to take good care of yourself and your loved ones. And when we do reconvene in the fall, I'm hopeful that we will no longer be practicing this physical distance, but we will be reflecting on all of this new and innovative ways to connect, to cultivate belonging and community, and to learn together in a variety of spaces. And I think I'm going to end with gratitude, gratitude for my friends, my students, of course, my family, and she's not here anymore. I'm going to try not to cry, but I would be remiss if I didn't express my tremendous gratitude and my love for my grandmother, Eileen Downey, who left this world in November and left a huge mark on this world and me. And I wish she was here to hear this. I hope that she's listening somewhere. And I hope that I have, um, you know, done her memory well in in the work that I've done um, in these last four months. So she was a great woman and I adored her and loved her and just have all the gratitude in the world for the lessons, the stories, the sayings, the feelings that she was willing to share with me and so many people that um, she touched in, in, in her life. So, so thanks grandmom for, for this. So again, thanks to everybody. I'm Carrie Borkowski and this has been the final episode of season one of tell me this. Take good care. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.